Free Free Left Weekly weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and your presenters today are going to be myself, Jacob Andrewafa. And me, Chloe. Good morning, listeners. And before we begin our program, we just want to acknowledge that we are meeting on the stolen lands of the Rondri Woiwurrung people, land that was never ceded. It was taken by force, and we stand with First Nations people in their struggle to fight for justice. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. How are you, Jacob, this, this morning? It's really good to be back in the studio, by the way. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back, um, Chloe. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, I'm all going well. And I guess possibly um, we're going to get, I guess, for our listeners, we have mm. pretty a pretty full program. Um, we're going to be actually having a bit of an interview that probably is a few weeks a bit late. Um, it's following the, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, the former... Um, former leader of the Soviet Union, well, actually the last leader of the Soviet Union. And we're going to be um, speaking to Renfrey Clark um, later on about, you know, actually what what is, what is the sort of significance of what he represented the Soviet Union. And then, of course, probably the main sort of discussion that will probably, you know, be predominant in our program today has been, I guess, the kind of response to the death um, to Queen Elizabeth, um, the... Um, the second, I think that's how you, I think, how you refer to her, Queen Elizabeth II, yeah, yeah? yeah? And essentially we're going to probably be having a bit of a discussion about, you know, because the kind of mainstream media is, or the corporate media is, essentially almost putting forward this completely kind of uncritical line on the monarchy and, and the role that the English monarchy actually plays. And... I think Green Left has actually has a number has actually a lot of articles actually been covering sort of how the different sort of left wing kind of responses to the death of Queen Elizabeth, and I guess probably the sort of uncritical sort of adoration that has been sort of pushed by our about by our capitalist leaders. Um, in mm. fact, they've already they've actually declared a kind of day of mourning on um, you know September the twenty second, and I guess. I think Chloe had a story, a, a news story she wanted to kind of share in relation to Queen Elizabeth. But I guess I want to sort of make a quick point about this about this public holiday. Now it's all it's probably good for Victorians <laughs> that we do have a four day um, public holiday. But I think one thing we have to put in perspective here is when you go back to you know January twenty sixth Australia Day. Yeah. Um, and there's been obviously massive protests caused, uh, called by the indigenous, um, caused by the indigenous community here protesting the day saying, no, you know, Australia Day is not a day to celebrate. It's actually a day of mourning. And you can just actually imagine it's, it's quite interesting that in response to the death of an old monarch, the, the government is very, very quick to call, just all of a sudden call public holiday. But in response to kind of like the mass pressure, uh, around, uh, Australia Day, 
they can't, yeah, it's, uh, there's actually even some political responses that come from politicians that it's actually too hard to just add it, change public, um, change the day of the week or, and, um, implement public holidays when actually, well, you've, they, the, gov- the capitalist government here has actually just proven how easy yeah, it is to yeah. actually just implement public holidays. Yeah, I mean, we all demand more, more leisure time, more holidays, but I mean, it is, it is kind of atrocious the reason we've been given this public holiday. I mean, like you, I'm happy to have a four day weekend as well, but you know what? It would be, I mean, the way the media has reacted, I wonder how Western media outlets would react if, you know, a monarch from South, like, um, South Asian country or something died. And we you know we piled up teddy bears in the street and, and declared this national day of mourning. Um, they'd have a lot. I mean, I don't know how they'd react to that, but I mean, it, the thing is, she has the queen has left this legacy of genocide, and you know, it is the result um, of over 230 years of, of genocide in this country. And you know, we really shouldn't be well as socialists. We'd, and you know, we're certainly not royalists here at 3CR. Definitely not going to be mourning the queen on that day. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Indigenous people were, were stripped of their rights. And, you know, as an individual as well, um, yeah, she stayed silent um, when it came to Indigenous people's rights. She was the head of state during all the horrendous periods um, of, you know, um, frontier wars. And, you know, she was, yeah, she was, she's just, she's now being painted, just because she's died, she's being painted at this as this, like, gentle um, figurehead. Um, but, yeah, really, we cannot forget what has happened in our history. And I guess, yeah, there's been, on when it comes to the kind of Queen's death, there's been this kind of conceded kind of attempt by the establishment to actually kind of police, I guess, how, you know, people respond to the death mm. of, of Queen Elizabeth. I guess, Chloe, you sort of had a news sort of a oh, headline yeah. kind of news story to sort of share yeah. related to that to start off, I guess, a bit of a kind of discussion. Yeah, I mean, people would have, um, might have, Heard the news about the National Rugby League for Women, the uh, the NRLW. They have proposed this one week ban and a suspended fine um, on an Indigenous night star, Caitlin Moran's contract. And she's a Gomorrah and um, and a one woman. And this is all happening because of a post she wrote on social media following the death of Queen Elizabeth. And they're saying that it's caused damage to the game. Um, and this is all, I mean, I don't know if we we can say the tweet, um, but yeah, this is all because she referred to the deceased queen as a dumb dog. Now, that post was deleted after a few hours, but the screenshots um, are being viewed by this integrity unit, the, the NRL's integrity unit. Um, and I guess, well... I don't know what you think about this, Jacob, but, you know, just to be clear, we speak in defense of, of, of Caitlin. I mean, it's a terrible, you know, kind of racist decision by the NRL, um, banning an Aboriginal player for not showing respect for this, um, dead colonizer, for speaking out as a First Nations woman against the monarchy and its colonial violence here in Australia. And the idea of free speech just goes out the window, doesn't it, um, when it comes to certain voices? I mean, we are supposed to be listening to First Nations voices, um, particularly during this so-called, you know, truth-telling campaign. Um, First Nations perspectives shouldn't be silenced, um, even if it is like a, a tweet like that. I mean, they've just really made a, a huge deal over it. Um, and there's like a lot of double standards as well. Um, you know, it would take a lot more for a man to face this kind of suspension, but a woman... An indigenous woman seems to, you know, 
bear the brunt when it comes to unjust punishments like this. Um, yeah, I don't know what you what you think about this this particular story, Jacob, but. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it kind of reflects, I think it reflects, I guess, a kind of tendency and a trend um, to essentially kind of police, like, how people kind of respond mm. to the monarch. And I guess we're going to be, this is going to be part of a discussion that we're going to be playing a pre-recording of, which I recorded with um, Sam Rainwright, National Co-Commander Socialist Alliance, where we actually talk in detail, you know, about the kind of legacy of the monarchy, um, the British monarchy, you know, how the media has sort of attempted to sort of Basically, there's sort of this argument that's being put forward that, you know, now is not the time to even criticise the monarch. Um, <laughs> and, well, when is going to be the right time? That's kind of like the question um, mm. that needs to be sort of asked. And there is obviously, there's a whole strong element of attempting to kind of police um, Indigenous voices. I just remember the, um, the response that uh, Maureen Farouk, um, who's not Indigenous, but she is of a Pakistani sort of background, a Greens MP, you know, she basically yeah. said, I will not. Uh, mourn, um, I will not mourn the death of, of Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, but I also thought what, you know, what is actually interesting is, you know, there's this whole thing about, you know, paying respect, etc. And it, and it doesn't seem to matter, like for Maureen Farouk's sort of comments, yeah. uh, you know, she actually asserted that, you know, people, you know, people can mourn the Queen or mm. uh, people have their right. And I think that by all definitions, yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, we're not going to attack people for that necessarily, but it's like, yeah, there's a, clearly this whole thing of like, you know, unless you have completely uncritical acceptance of or uncritical mourning of the Queen because of how great um, they are, um, what a great person she was, then no, we, yeah, it's, it yeah. basically kind of reflects a kind of, it's like a, it's like a, essentially um, a silencing, I guess, of dissent. And and yeah. I also think it's quite funny, like I'm just looking at some of the imagery that's coming out of. Um, uh, the UK right now, and you know the amount, the 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 elaborate sort of uh, feudal sort of proceedings, you know, mm. all that kind of thing. I mean, the way that they're bringing together all the kind of the rich and the powerful, um, ha- how they've even bought like apparently ten <laughs> Australians have been allowed to come, uh. including one who's actually a war criminal. <laughs> like it's it's like exposed, it's- like boasting about the enormous amount of wealth they actually possess, mm. and the fact that they don't really pay taxes. Yeah, yeah, but it's almost <laughs> like it's a bit like, okay, so in the Western media, we always go on about how, oh wow, look how terrible North Korea is because mm. they have like a monarch and, yeah. uh, and you know they 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 completely indoctrinate their citizens into worshiping <laughs> Kim Jong Il, and it's like yeah. when you look at like. How the capitalist, how Western capitalist country responds to like the death of Queen Elizabeth II. It's like, what is actually the meaningful difference? It's like, yeah. they essentially silence any kind of dissent. Um, and basically you have to fall in line with this, uh, un, adore, uncritical adoration. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's very hypocritical by the, by the media. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this might be a good time to actually go into the interview that we've done with um, Sam Rainwright. I'll just play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. 
Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined today by Sam Rainwhite, who is the national co-convener of Socialist Alliance. And we have... Um, Sam here today to have a bit of a discussion about, you know, following the death of Queen Elizabeth, um, we have seen like, you know, a lot of this adoration um, within the sort of mainstream sort of media. And I guess it's sort of raising, I guess, a bit of this kind of discussion about the whole kind of role of the monarchy within Australian politics. And I think we have Sam here to, to guess have a bit of a critical kind of discussion that we're not necessarily going to be having in the sort of mainstream sort of media. So, yeah, good morning, Sam. Yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for the opportunity. So, I guess... To, to start off with my first question, there has been a lot of adoration for the role of Queen Elizabeth II and the royal family following her death. And of course, we are being told now by you know a lot of the mainstream sort of news outlets, you know from the cap um, from the capitalist sort of press, you know that now is not the time to criticise the monarchy. Why do you think this is nonsense from any kind of progressive kind of standpoint? Well, I think it's nonsense because what we've witnessed over the last week is an absolutely full tilt attempt by uh, all, you know, pretty much all of our mainstream media, including, I should say, the ABC, to essentially build up and venerate the institution of the British royal family. So it's not like this has just been treated as, you know, the, the dignified pri- private funeral of an elderly woman or even a dignified state funeral. No, this has been turned into a massive media event. And you you could not say that the media coverage of the death of Queen Elizabeth and the succession of King Charles, you could not say that that has just just been a case of news reporting. It hasn't been reporting. It's been a very conscious process of trying to construct and build up the institution. And it's all about the institution. So it's then totally disingenuous for people who support that institution to say, oh, well, now's not the time. Um, Or, uh, you know, the the way it often gets put is, oh, but, you know, know, Queen Elizabeth was a grandmother too and, you know, she did a lot of good works and all this sort of stuff. Um, But whatever the truth of that, um, of of, of so-called good works or good good intentions of of, of Queen Elizabeth, the, 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 the point is that this is being treated as an ideological event, um, promotion event, by our media, and as such, we have a perfect right to respond, and it's the perfect time to do it. And, you know, I don't think I'll be telling your listeners anything they don't know already, but the very notion that you would have uh, an unelected, divine birthright figurehead of our state is runs in complete contradiction with the most basic and fundamental democratic principles. Uh, that's That's just obvious, and we have a right to say it. Um, I'll go, I was going to go into sort of another question before I go into sort of the other one. And I guess I wanted to hear, I guess, some of your comments on, I guess, the kind of actual kind of legacy of the British kind of royal family, because there's been a kind of lot of commentary about, you know, the so-called good works of Queen Elizabeth and, you know, you can't, you can't blame, you know, you can't attribute, you know, the crimes of British colonialism to 
um, to the royal family and, and so on. And of course, yeah, and it's quite clear that when it came comes to the death of Queen Elizabeth, it's look, been looked at a lot differently from those who are within the global south. And I kind of wanted to hear, what is your sort of comments on some of that? Yes, well, you know, this this sort of defence of of the Queen and the royal family on the line, on the lines of, oh, they've tried to do good works and change it from within and all this sort of stuff. I mean, let's bear in mind that, you know, Queen Elizabeth was only in a position to do these so-called good works by virtue of an institution that she was born into. Um, and it's, the institution is, is, is the question at hand. I mean, my grandmother died at the age of 96 and she was caring, inclined and considerate as well, but no one was asked to, you know, stand for a minute silence at a football game when she passed away. Um, why? Well, just by virtue of the fact that she, she was des- descended from European peasants, not European nobility. Um, now... You know, there's there's no doubt that the outpouring um, around Queen Elizabeth II, especially in a country like Australia and Britain, it's not entirely manufactured. I mean, there's a genuine... It's sort of mixed in... I, I hesitate to use the term, but for boomers in particular, it's kind of mixed in with an element of nostalgia for their youth. Remember that Queen Elizabeth came to the throne um, you know, in her youth um, at a time broadly coinciding with the time of rising prosperity um, in the global north, including for working people in the global north. So people sort of... So there, there, there is a layer of the population who think about these things less critically, who just sort of see the passing of Queen Elizabeth a bit like a pop star from their youth. You know, they, they, they conflate Queen Elizabeth with just sort of continuity, the sunshine of their youth and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's a real thing when we have to understand that and relate to it and not just, you know, you know, dump shit on such people for being for being sort of naive or ignorant. But at the same time, we, we, we have to recognise, and certainly not silent, the voices of those people who see um, in, embodied by, by, the, by the British royal family, the violence and dispossession that was suffered by them. And, I mean, we, we, we see that, you know, equally in the outpouring of people both in the global south and, and, and people in Ireland. Um, and, you know, uh, as, as Irish... Patriot and trade unionist and socialist James Connolly said, um, I'm paraphrasing it here, but he said, you know, we won't, we, he was talking about King George V ascending to the throne, and he said, we, he said, we won't hold King George V responsible for the crimes of ancestors, providing, you know, for the crimes of his ancestors, providing he relinquishes the royal title and authority that he gets um, by, by, you know, by virtue of his ancestors. So, you know, people can't have it both ways. They can't say, oh, the Queen's not responsible for everything that was done in her name in the past. Oh, but she still gets to hang on to this title and the wealth and all that sort of stuff that comes with that role that was actually an instrumental, both materially and ideologically, in, in spearheading both the subjugation of Ireland and then the, and then the British Empire. It, it's got to be one or the other. And that's, you know, they get caught by, caught, sort of defenders of the British royal family get caught up on their own contradictions on that one. Well, the next kind of question is, and I think this is sort of an interesting sort of area to kind of explore, because, okay, so we're living under capitalism kind of today. Now, one of the sort of amazing dreams that sort of modern, that capitalism kind of brought to the fore, I guess, you know, looking from the ideals of the French Revolution, you know, it was this whole idea of actually ending the rule of monarchs, you know, ending the rule of kings and and queens, um, to be able to actually live in a world where, you know... uh, would enjoy 
more of the full worth of labour. I mean, that's I mean that's the idea of socialism, but it was also a certain sense a progressive ideal of capitalism following um, the transition from feudalism to capitalism. But I guess I so in that sense, the monarchy is you know it's a it's an institution that's more or less a relic of an old relic of a far gone era. And I guess why do you think under capitalism today, especially more I guess more in the Commonwealth sort of countries um, like Australia that where, where we where we're speaking today. Why do you think it is still symbolically kind of maintained as an institution? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question because it's, um, you know, it's easy enough just to sort of pour scorn on the British royal family as an outdated, you know, bizarre institution and this sort of wacky relic of feudalism just sort of tacked on like a bit of tinsel um, to the side of the contemporary or modern state. Um, and, it, you know, it, it is that. Um, and just to reduce it to sort of pure symbolism or just, you know, it's a value as, um, you know, celebrity pop culture distraction, that sort of stuff. And it, you know, performs all those functions, but there's something actually much deeper going on. And I think, I think you raise a really important point. What, what is its modern function? Um, cause it, and, and it, it all, all the more so too, because people talk about, you know, Queen Elizabeth modern, modernizing the institution of the monarchy. And, you know, of course there are plenty of, modern capitalist states that are republics. Um, so, you know, it's obviously it's not an indis- indispensable um, feature of a modern capitalist state. So why 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 has it continued um, in Britain, Canada, Australia in particular? And you know, this you know this there's, there's specific historical reasons why that's the case. But I think it is interesting to look at what function does it perform. And I think I think there's a few things. One is that it continues to give legitimacy to the idea that some people are born to rule and others are not. And that remains true, not, not in the same way as it, as, as it was under feudalism, but that fundament, that, that remains true in modern capitalist society as, as it was under feudalism. I mean, if you look at uh, the massive disparity of wealth and the growing gap between, you know, growing wealth gap in a country like Australia, what that bears out is despite the sort of the capitalist dream that we can all make it to the top if we try hard enough, the vast majority of really wealthy capitalists inherit their wealth and pass their wealth on. And so we still live in a society that is fundamentally defined by the lottery of birth. And so the, the British royal family you know, continues to play a certain ideological function of, of legitimising or justifying that. Then the other thing as well is that the British royal family has been used to try and create this aura or notion that there is, you know, there's, there's aspects or functions of the state that sit above politics, that are beyond reproach, that are beyond debate, um, that are, if you like, almost God-given, uh, and that politicians come and go, but there, there are some things that remain eternal, you know, um, and unchanging, um, and that's true, you know, in terms of the way the state functions, and I guess the the British royal family is used to sort of um, just kind of symbolise that in, 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 in human form, you know. Um, and you think about it in context of the last... Like I said at the start of the interview that um, people kind of remember Queen Elizabeth, you know, um, particularly, you know, people over the age of 60, for instance. You know, they, they, they think of her, you know, her, her, you're coming to the throne coinciding with the, with the sunshine of their youth. But she's the latter part of her reign, if you'll excuse me for using the term, um, has coincided has coincided with neoliberalism. 
in Britain and in Australia. Uh, and so that has actually meant, you know, people's a, a, a growth in insecurity in people's lives, less secure work, higher, you know, um, privatisation, contracting out, deregulation, a massive increase in in, 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 um, in in the cost of housing, and and that in turn has in fact injected greater instability and volatility into our politics. And it's seen people's identification with mainstream politics and the so-called two-party system decline, and their cynicism with politics decline. And the number of people who are described as rusted on Liberal or Labor voters has been declining. It's much more common for governments to be kicked out of only one term, and that's that's because of the, of the pain being inflicted on people by neoliberalism. And so it's harder for both Labor and Liberal, for instance, in this country to build consensus. And so you see, you see that volatility. So in that, in that sense, the Queen and this sort of permanency, you know, all, you know, all these politicians may be scoundrels and they come and go, that sort of stuff, but you've still got the good old Queen, you know, just at the helm, you know, steadying the ship, or, you know, all that kind of thing. So I think that's the sort of function, that, that the actual, the, the, real, the profoundly problematic function um, that the British royal family has, has played in the context of modern capitalism. And I think I think you can actually say that Queen Elizabeth and the people around her, you know, very consciously have, have sought to, to, to fashion the royal family into that function, you know, to, to, to perform that function. Um, yeah, so in, in, in that sense, you know, you know, we really need to clear that away so we can actually have a proper discussion about, about how to move forward in this society, um, socially, uh, politically, um, democratically, and so on. And I guess that gets into the next kind of question, which is, I guess, following the death of Queen Elizabeth, um, due to rules within our Australian Parliament, um, you know, being, being a constitutional monarchy, um, every single parliamentarian now has to kind of swear allegiance to the new king. Um, and I guess this has sort of raised discussions from progressive MPs from parties such as the Greens about, um, which is, you know, asking the question, why do we have to pledge allegiance to an unelected monarch before we are allowed to do anything in Parliament, before we're able to advocate for anything progressive? And I guess, how does this sort of raise the case, you know, for Australia becoming a republic? Well, I mean, the, re the reason MPs have to do it is because we're a constitutional monarchy, you know, and that's what's got to be changed. Um, and so it's, you know, swearing allegiance to the monarch is, is, is just the thing you have to do if you want to take your seat, seat in Parliament. So that's, um, that's, that's, that's the, gist of the, the gist of the problem. I, I, think, I think, though, you know, in, we, we should absolutely use this moment to, to, to raise a discussion about a transition to an Australian Republic. Um, but do it in a way that pushes, pushes the envelope. Because we know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, there are perfectly stable, conservative, capitalist republics um, in the world. And, you know, in a country like France, for instance, where they did away with the monarchy a long time ago, the sort of the ideological bullshit that politicians gravitate to to justify any reactionary horrible thing they're doing is, is they invoke republican values. You know, everything is shitty in France. Things that politicians want to do, um, just like in Australia, you know, they talk about, oh, we're doing it in the national interest. Um, uh, you know, in, in France, they talk, about, oh, you know, this is in line with Republican values. You know, it's a Republican values just being, being F, ends up being whatever you want it to mean. Um, so it's very important then that in, in, in that context, and given people's cynicism with politics as well, is that is that we don't just advocate for a minimalist republic where we just you know replace. 
you know, the British royal family with an appointed, you know, um, president um, who performs exactly the same roles. Um, instead, I think we should be trying to advance an argument for republic based on treaty and with Bill of Rights, as a starting point, at least. It's a, there's a lot more we can advocate, advocate for as well. Um, but a transition to a republic should precisely mean... Um, something more than just a bit of symbolic change at the top. Because that'll just, you know, that'll just make people more cynical and pissed off with politics. And it's, and, it, and it's why the Republic referendum back in 1999 was defeated, you know, because people just saw it as just a, just a little symbolic sort of trick being pulled by politicians. And it's got to be something more profound than that. And that's why equally, and this is more important than any, than, 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 than what goes in a Republic, is that it's got to be born out of a popular process. So, um, you, you know, that, if, if you look at the kind, you know, even though it was defeated, uh, the referendum for a new for a new constitution in Chile um, is a little pointer. Um, I mean, it wasn't. We talk about why that happened, uh, but the, the, the sort of change we need is to be born out of a republic that is that that, that is born out of popular will. Um, so I think we do need some sort of mass mass process of we would need some kind of mass process of engagement um, in which popular demands are allowed to be formed and then are embedded in. In the, in the referendum for change. But I guess um, that kind of does lead, I mean, you sort of covered some of the parts, I guess, of the next kind of question, but I guess I want to sort of, uh, you know, ask a bit of a concluding kind of question, I guess, you know, from the perspective of being, I guess, a socialist, I mean, what would you sort of see, I guess, as more a sort of ideal form of Australia becoming a republic? Because given that, you know, there is clearly a debate amongst both the left and right, on a republic, for example, I mean, Malcolm Turnbull, for example, supports the idea of uh, Australia becoming a republic, but, you know, his version of what the, uh, the republic be is very different from, say, what Lydia Thorpe um, from the Greens thinks should be, um, should have a republic. And I guess another, I guess, aspect is, I guess, more sort of elaboration, I guess, on how, you know, how a transition to an um, Australia becoming a republic Needs to kind of respect the sovereignty and rights of our first of our of our first nations people. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think that's why the cornerstone um, of progress towards a republic has to be treaty. Uh, you know, and treaty that respects that the sovereignty was never ceded, and that embeds a process of real land rights. I mean, if we don't do that, then then it's not worth shit. Basically, I mean, that's got that's got to be the starting point. Both both in terms of delivering a measure of justice to, to Indigenous people, um, but also, you know, until we're honest about our history, then we're, then we're not going to be able to make, a, make an honest future. Um, so that's, I think that's got to be a starting, a starting point. Um, like I said before, the, you know, the, the, the process has, has got to be driven by popular engagement as well. Um, so, you know, if, it can't be done, done by technocrats at the, at, at the top. Um, if we get a transition to a republic, then we do need some sort of, you know, uh, process of, you know, popular conventions or such as have happened in other countries, something like that, that actually really, really make it very clear that this is a process that's been driven by, by popular will. Uh, I think also then it needs to, you know, we need to embed things like um, respect for the environment and, um, and, and, and civil rights, um, some sort of code or charter of civil rights as well, so that we can begin to edge our way towards grasping the fact that real democracy means extending democracy to the economy. Um, and that's, you know, I guess that's, um, you know, we, we need the kind of constitution that actually 
that 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 makes it an obligation of the state, for instance, this is one example, but makes it an obligation of the state to guarantee access to dignified and affordable housing as a human right for everyone. That's that's the kind of thing that also needs to be embedded in 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 in, in, the, in the constitution of the republic that we need. Hi. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I think this has been a very good kind of discussion. And I think, you know, there's good at these quite... Um, one thing I'd like to note is we have... Um, Green Left has actually published kind of a lot of coverage um, in the kind of um, past week on, you know, with lots of commentary on this question around the role of the monarch, uh, monarchy in Australian society, and also criticism of the kind of mainstream sort of line of almost kind of uncritical adoration of Queen Elizabeth. So... Yeah, I, I definitely recommend to our listeners that you check out some of the articles that have been printed, published on greenleft.org.au. And I'd like to also thank again, um, Sam, for joining us on our program. All right. You're just listening to Sam Rainwright from um, National Co-Convener of Socialist Alliance. And, yeah, I just want to sort of um, expand on just the point I sort of said. If you look up uh, at the Green Left website, greenleft.org.au, we actually have a lot of commentary and a lot of um, articles on the responses to all these sort of um, all the kind of political themes that have kind of been raised in that kind of discussion with Sam Rainwright. And, of course, um, yeah, uh the, the the kind of a mate the kind of thing that um would be the one of the things is well is that you know green left actually provides the kind of perspective that is not necessarily sort of covered by the kind of mainstream press um in fact it tells the story of the oppressed and the one of the things as well is you can become a supporter of green left for as low as five dollars a month you can just go on the website greenleft.org.au forward slash support Okay, now join on another news article from um, from the pages of Green Left. Um, this is a news report about Apple workers um, who are who are organising right now to fight for a fair enterprise um, agreement. So retail workers, this is being reported in Green Left. Retail workers at Apple stores across the country have applied to the Fair Work Commission to take industrial action after the tech giant tried to push through a poor enterprise agreement. The, the more than 4,000 mostly casual worker has had, have had to put up with bad conditions, including no access to weekend penalty rates, insecure jobs, um, an expectation of wide, um, wide availability and low wages. And of course, Apple, you know, they proposed an enterprise agreement that not only included a real wage cut, it would allow management to roster workers for 60 hours a week without overtime. And of course, Apple is probably one of the other few corporations, and I think this is where this fight is actually going to be quite important. They're, they, along with other kind of tech giants such as Amazon, Google, Facebook and Microsoft, I mean, all these sort of tech corporations actually, they like to think of themselves as above everything, <laughs> including above unions. So that's hence why they have ramped up, uh, they've ramped up union busting um, tactics in response to growing industrial campaigns. But... Um, on the other hand, Apple workers in Maryland, Baltimore, and the United States became the first of um, the company's retail store to unionize in June. So I think this is this is probably one of the good um, positive things, and hoping we can sort of see, um, yeah, something um, a similar kind of process happening in Australia with Apple workers. Um, um, Chloe, you had something to sort of say? Oh yeah, I mean solidarity to those workers who are fighting for. I mean they're just they're making very modest demands, and I'm. I'm sure, um, I mean, we really do need a mass campaign to fight all these anti-worker, anti-union laws that, you know, if you read this article, I mean, workers are always being intimidated. 
um, you know, these these anti-worker laws, they really undermine a worker's confidence to fight for their rights. And, you know, they're just being bullied for trying to improve conditions. And, you know, I'm sure they can afford the company. Um, Apple can afford to pay their workers the, the hour base rate of $31 an hour. Um, their CEO took home something like $3 million in salary. Um, and, you know, his total re- um, package was worth something like $98 million. I mean, I'm sure they can... Apple was one of the biggest winners of the pandemic. Um, and its its share price has actually soared as the, the coronavirus pushed workers online as well. So, I mean, they, they definitely can afford um, these very modest um, asks from, from the workers. So, yeah, um, solidarity... Okay, well, um, I was thinking before we go into our first interview for the um, for our next one, not uh, second interview of the program, I would play, you know, and this will be this is I think an appropriate kind of song to sort of play, you know, following you know the death of Queen Elizabeth, but this is a song by you know Aboriginal activists, uh, Aboriginal group um, drumming now, and the song is titled "Always Remember." Um, so yeah, hope you enjoy, listeners. To see ancestors asking many questions What are these lessons I compressed upon Now addresses Fuels tribal addiction guesses Anyone's best guesses Now they got generations seeking mass convalescence Eucalyptus, widow bar, DBS shepherds Totems taken with no conscience or questions No concept or consciousness of things before the present Vacuous and empty like the windswept desert Heroin house under the moon present in the noon sunrise to change the present with your range trauma laden generations fed up but the focus to be better and spot colonial resin fermented in these strange weathers some seemed to get stuck in quagmires vision torn and severed but original lines always remembered hold together in the now as we hold on to forever more treasures we always remember why always remember yeah, we always remember why Forevermore, yeah We always remember why Always remember Yeah, we always remember why some, they lost frames, claimed divine name change We arranged strange ways, submerged in haze Gray upon halcyon days, house unseen in the maze Destitute ways, left with the loot and skip frames Top conditions, formulated wild renditions Play victims in written cinematic systems But they got it all messed up, land covered in division Wild incisions, a carnage of innocent fiction Why just sit and wait for a minute Spirit get to floating, up beyond metropolis This river locomotion, here the Trick release the pain beyond the hocus pocus Open heart release into the source of and devotion From eons before to the very present moment I just sit and analyze Reacquaint and scope but I'm still here trying to stay blessed Stand strong and spot Stress is trickled down a horrific conquest Another warrior woman Just trying to get rest on this quest The work close eyes focus and catch breath Stoke and fire Containing ashes from the sacred path the life dripping down, create the spirit lot, yes. We always remember why. Always remember why. 
always remember Yeah, we always remember why Forevermore, yeah We always remember why Always remember Yeah, we always remember why Forevermore Always remember Ancestors You're listening to Green Left Radio on Freecr 855 AM. And you're just listening to Always Remember by Drumming Now. Now, we're very happy to be joined by our second guest for the program, Renfrey Clark. Renfrey was actually the Green Left's full-time Moscow-based correspondent covering the Soviet Union and the then restoration of capitalism between 1990 and 1998. And we have um, Renfrey um, on our program today because um, Mikhail Gorbachev... Um, d- recently kind of passed away on the um, the 30th of kind of August and we wanted to have a bit of a discussion about with Renfrey about his legacy especially since you know there is often a bit of a contest uh, a, con- a contestation about it so good morning Renfrey good morning Jake okay so I guess to start off um, Golbyshev passed away on August the 30th and since then, there's been a whole host of commentary on his legacy. And I guess what he represented, you know, we have those on the left, probably more from a more Stalinist sort of, um, or potentially Maoist sort of tradition, um, you know, arguing that he was sort of part of destroying socialism. And of course, there's others on the right who go into the other direction. They say that he was a great reformer of modernising Russia into a capitalist state and, you know, brought Russia into the 21st century. So I guess what is your sort of, you know, as someone who is actually there and also from the perspective of someone who has been a long time sort of committed socialist, you know, what is your, what what do you sort of think is the real legacy of Gorbachev? Well, what did uh, Gorbachev achieve, as as we can see looking back after several, several decades? Did he bring about democracy in Russia? Well, no. Um, the space for opponents of uh, of um, Putin in Russia today is extremely constricted. The parliament is made up of yes people. The media have been comprehensively tamed. Did he achieve the modernisation of uh, Soviet then Russian society? So, well, not really. The first development after the reinstitution of capitalism in in Russia was economic collapse. By 1998, Russian GDP was only a little more than half of what it had been in the final stages of the Soviet Union. So what did Gorbachev actually do? What had he achieved? I would say that he prepared the way for and partly oversaw the capitalist counter-revolution that put an end to the Soviet Union. Was the USSR socialist? Only in a certain very limited sense. 
Uh, in the Soviet Union, you had nationalised property relationships. It certainly wasn't capitalist. And that kind of society was, was fundamentally different. But while you had these nationalised property relationships, you certainly didn't have the effective, directly exercised power of the working class in society. Rule in the Soviet Union was carried out by what the better kind of analyst has described as a bureaucratic stratum, that is, of people who held positions of power within the state and industrial apparatus and who exercised that in defiance of the working class who theoretically held power in the country. And they gave themselves various important privileges on the basis of their control, not ownership, but control over the means of production. Now, this was a society that had many terrible contradictions. And eventually it entered into crisis, particularly after 1975. By 1985, when Gorbachev came to office as General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, it was in profound crisis and heading into outright decline. There was an understanding in this ruling bureaucratic layer that things couldn't continue as they had been, that there was a need for reform, for doing things differently. They put Gorbachev as the bright relatively young um, bureaucratic official with a, a, a good record as a, as a tough administrator, as someone able to make uh, difficult decisions and carry them through. They put him into, into power, into the leading position, and his job, as they saw it, was to fix the mess. Now, who was Gorbachev at that stage? He made his name as the head of of the Soviet Agricultural Administration, a very difficult portfolio. It had limited success where nobody else had been able to achieve anything much. And he was relatively young. He was smart. He was abrasive. He was uh, prepared to push out people who were simply getting in the way. I regard Gorbachev as having had a kind of dual character, he was part of that bureaucratic apparatus. That was his background. That was what he was used to operating within. Um, he had this illusion, I think, that the necessary changes to the system could be implemented from above without the mass intervention of the working class. Um, he saw those changes as, carry, as being able to be carried out essentially through the old methods of the bureaucracy without fundamentally altering things and allowing masses of the working population genuine political power. This was at the same time as he had much to say about the need for democracy and openness in the Soviet Union. If you remember, you know, we need democracy like we need air. I don't think this really entered into his operating method. Now, at the same time, Gorbachev was a member of the Soviet liberal intelligentsia. At the same time he was a bureaucrat, he hobnobbed continually with this stratum of people in the Soviet Union who were educated, who had 
positions more or less comfortable and prestigious, the people in the, in the think tanks, in the institutions of the Academy of Sciences, um, some of the more um, open-minded industrial administrators, and so on. And as a member of the intelligentsia, he was profoundly influenced by liberal attitudes. He was somebody who had gross illusions in what capitalism could achieve and in what capitalism had achieved in the West. And when we think about the West, um, Soviet, the Soviet liberal intelligentsia of this, thought, of this time fought in terms of Sweden and not of Somalia. Most of the capitalist world, when you think about it, is poor and only semi-developed. It's only a few very favoured countries, Europe, North America, Australia, and so on, where capitalism is really prosperous and gives relatively good lives to the bulk of the population. In most of the capitalist world, it didn't. But the Soviet liberal intelligentsia was blind to most of the capitalist world. It saw only the Swedens and not sub-Saharan Africa. Now, the process... Um, it's defined as reform, and up to a certain point, Gorbachev was trying to push reform. Fair enough. Um, what were some of the reforms that he attempted to carry out? I think he had this illusion that relatively minor methods, relatively superficial methods, could do the trick, or at least this hope. The anti-alcoholism campaign, because widespread alcoholism in the population at large uh, was reducing the dynamism of, of Soviet society, which by this stage was pretty stagnant. Uh, right. You deny people the right to buy liquor freely. Now, there was experience of this in the West in the 1920s in the United States with prohibition. What it involves is handing a major industry over to the mafia. And that was what was done in the Soviet Union during the late 1980s. That uh, anti-alcoholism campaign was a fiasco. It was a failure. Um, it greatly multiplied, um, multiplied corruption in, in Soviet society. And Soviet society had been dependent on the revenues from alcohol sales and those uh, were largely lacking now. So it introduced uh, a shortfall of government revenues at the same time as it solved none of the fundamental problems. And what else? An acceleration campaign. You give people material bonuses, higher pay if they actually produced, if, uh, if output went up. The trouble was that uh, the workers enjoyed the bonuses, they received the extra pay, but um, the Increment in production was just not there, so that you had excess purchasing power in the in the uh, in the economy at the same time as you didn't have an increased flow of commodities. That spelt inflationary pressures at the same time as prices were tightly controlled. That meant shortages, um, and the shortages contributed again to corruption. There were other, perhaps more fundamental reforms that Gorbachev attempted to implement. The most important of them was that he, he gave extensive new powers to 
factory directors to enterprise directors to determine how they produced, what they produced. He relaxed the planning uh, apparatus. Now, it was true that the, the style of Soviet planning was very constrictive and that it gave very little room for uh, people in the, in the factories to determine what they produced, what made more sense. But at the same time, you needed the planning, um, and the planning was largely abandoned. What that meant was that the, uh, the enterprise directors began producing what they found most profitable and what was not necessarily what was needed by uh, Soviet society overall. This added to the shortages because the enterprises... Uh, couldn't make money out of making all sorts of necessary things, and they simply didn't get produced. That sent waves of chaos radiating through the economy. That reform was, a, was again, a failure. Another reform, cooperatives allow these uh, enterprising people who have a little bit of capital to set up small businesses. Now, that made a lot of sense because um, Soviet society, the Soviet economy, had been nationalised down to a rather absurd degree, to the point where you couldn't set up a small private business for many decades. Uh, that meant that a lot of petty goods and services were simply not available. You had to try to try to get things through corrupt means, or you, or you just went without. Uh, but the trouble there was that um, the people who had money, the people who had access to um, enterprise funds, siphoned them off, set up their own private businesses, their own, well, not cooperatives, but their own private companies operating semi-legally. Again, a source of corruption, a source of enormous confusion within the economy. And you had, on this basis, a new capitalist class congealing within Soviet society, within the layers of bureaucrats, particularly of uh, industrial enterprise directors. And this was about the stage that uh, Soviet society had reached when I went there in 1990. It was an appalling mess. You could not get the most basic commodities that you needed. Corruption was just about universal. The population was profoundly demoralized by the society that they lived within. But most importantly, I think, the people who actually held power in one way or another, exercised power, regarded the socialist system with absolute cynicism. They were just looking sideways, waiting for somebody else to jump, after which they would jump as well. And... Uh, so as the socialist system founded, a new capitalist class was coming into being. A corrupt capitalist class used to operating in the, in the fashion of Soviet bureaucrats. And you had... Um, Renfrew, just to, um, just to interrupt you there a bit, getting into, I, I was thinking that I think you've given up, a, a given a kind of good kind of overview, I guess, of the kind of um, legacy, I guess, of Gorbachev, um, but also, you know, what the kind of restoration of capitalism has sort of had sort of meant um, for the Soviet Union, because in the end of the day, you sort of 
you make a good sort of reference to the fact that actually, you know, people's living standards actually sort of plummeted uh, following the kind of re- restoration of capitalism. And there's also the fact that, you know, there is it is actually a reality that a lot of people are incredibly kind of nostalgic for the Soviet Union and the, of the Soviet system because of a lot of the disaster of these kind of capitalist sort of reforms. But I guess I, I want to sort of take the question because um, we're running a bit, we might be out of time to go out into everything. Um, the kind of next kind of, the important sort of question, I guess, for our listeners, I guess, is in terms of, I guess, the legacy of Gorbachev, um, what does the, I guess, the country, you know, today, Russia today, I guess, under the leadership of Putin, does it kind of represent a sense of continuity with the, with the old Soviet era of the Russia? That's what, you know, conservative commentators, um, explain, um, try to claim. Or is it, I guess, more or less continuing this sort of line, I guess, of capitalist restoration? Because, you know, there's clearly almost like an argument as well about, especially Putin's actions around Ukraine that, you know, the Putin sort of regime almost sort of has expansionist sort of tendencies. It's about, in a sense, expanding the reach of Russian sort of capitalism. And I guess, what are your sort of comments about that, especially in relation to all the sort of things you've sort of brought, um, brought up? As I, I guess a bit of a concluding question for the interview, because we'll be running out of time shortly. Well, is there a continuity from, uh, from Soviet times in, in today's Russia? No. Uh, not fundamentally. This is a quite different kind of society. It's a capitalist society in which um, you don't just have uh, Soviet bureaucrats who derive their power from the state. You have independent capitalists running large industrial empires. You have rule by the oligarchs. Um, Putin is an authoritarian. He doesn't allow these oligarchs to intervene in a meaningful way in politics. But at the same time, he rules on their behalf and he prevents um, the kind of workers' organisation which would constrain these bureaucrats in, uh, in effect. He doesn't allow a socialist opposition to arise. Putin rules for the oligarchs and in their interests. Uh, it's not democracy, it's certainly capitalism, but it's a capitalism of a very strange kind. Some good friends of mine in Russia uh, described it as Jurassic capitalism, looking back to the, to the film Jurassic Park. The dinosaurs there, uh, the people who run the place, uh, they're not Western-style capitalists. They operate in the in the manner and with the ethos and with the logic of the old uh, the old corrupt <coughs> Soviet economic managers. They're, they're not particularly enterprising. They're not into in- investment. They're not really into innovation or modernisation. They carry on in their in their own accustomed way deriving profits largely through getting around the system and through doing um, fancy deals with one another. The system remains profoundly corrupt. It lacks dynamism. Growth in the Soviet in growth in Russia in, in recent decades has been lethargic. Um, you have growth rates of only one to two percent even before COVID, even before the the intervention in in Ukraine, it's a sick system, except now that it's a sick capitalist system instead of a sick socialism. Oh, well, um, 
Thanks for that, um, Renfrey. And I guess, do you, I guess, have any kind of final kind of comments that you'd like to kind of conclude this discussion on? Well, there are enormous lessons to be drawn from the Soviet and Russian experience. Perhaps the most fundamental of them is that the role of the of the working class is absolutely fundamental. Gorbachev had a lot to say about democracy, but he was never talking about workers' democracy. He was talking about giving the liberal intelligentsia and the industrial managers their head, giving them political power, the right to say and organise, to, to talk and to organise as they, as they wished. The critical thing about democracy is that it requires an active, politically engaged working class. That was never part of Gorbachev's project. If he had really been about democracy in the final years of the Soviet Union, he would have created genuine workers' organisations, political um, trade unions that directly represented workers and that were able to fight on their on their behalf against uh, the bureaucrats, against the factory managers, uh, on an active legal basis. That didn't exist. That would have created a real Soviet democracy that would have been able to bring about real reform within the Soviet system, within the socialist system, rather than the restoration of capitalism, rather than capitalist counter-revolution. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, um, Renfrey. I think this has been a very, yeah, a very interesting kind of and fascinating discussion with a good kind of overview, I guess, of the history of, of Gorbachev's legacy. Thank you very much, um, Renfrey, for being on our program. It's a pleasure. All right. You're just listening to Renfrey Clark. Um, who, as I said, was actually the Green Left correspondent in Moscow um, from the from 1990, I think from the 1990 to 1998. I'll, actually, I'll get the correct dates and put it in the kind of podcast description. But yeah, just a good sort of very amazing sort of overview, I guess, of the history um, as it's sort of happening. I think, you know, being part, I think, of actually following the fall of the Soviet Union in real time, I think is quite a incredible experience because I think at the end of the day, you know, for a while, for all the problems of the Soviet Union, there's no apologism for it really, you know, it did in some sense, there was a certain sense that it represented something, a a different way of organising society. And I think, you know, following that sort of legacy of the Russian Revolution, there is a sort of element of kind of nostalgia that people do have for the Soviet Union that's not completely, you know, unjustified in in that context. Okay, so I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with a battle cry Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers So it went Joseph 
Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar, giving you updates on a number of upcoming events that are um, going to be coming up. So the first event I want to sort of highlight is... um, there's going to be a rally on Sunday, September the 18th, um, Truth Not War, Free Julian Assange. And that's going to be happening at 12 noon at the State Library. And I think it's been organised by all the kind of different peace groups and the anti-AUKUS groups that are currently being um, are currently politically active. So I think that will be a good protest to kind of go to. And then on Monday, September the 19th, there's going to be a public forum, Voices from MITRE, the ongoing hell of immigration detention, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre, 251 Faraday Street in Carlton. And then on Tuesday, September the 20th, there's going to be a film screening, Rocking the Foundations, at 6.30pm at the New International Bookshop, Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. And then on Wednesday, September the 21st, there is... Um, there is a forum, Climate Journalism from the Frontlines, and that will be happening at 6.30pm at the Public Lecture Theatre, 122 Old Arts Building 149, Melbourne University. And I think that will be an interesting event because it's um, featuring a number of um, Pacific Islanders and climate activists. And then on Wednesday, September the 28th, there's going to be a launch party, Move Beyond Coal, and that's going to be happening at 6pm at 75 Reed Street in Fitzroy North. And then on Saturday, October the 1st, there's going to be a rally, Close MITRE, Free the Refugees at 2pm, MITRE Detention Centre, 120 Camp Road in Broadmeadows. And then on Saturday, October the 8th, um, there's going to be um, the Eco-Social in 2022 um, System Change, Not Climate Change um, conference that's going to be happening from 10am to 6pm at the AMWU office, 251 Queensbury Street in Carlton. And then on Wednesday, October the 12th, there's going to be, um, there's going to be the protest, the Combank AGM at 9am at the MCG in the city. All right. Well, I think that's, um, that covers, I guess, a number of the kind of events. Um, I was thinking probably before we go into our next, uh, next interview for the program, we'll play a song by Archie Roach, Down City Streets. Down city streets, I would roam. I had no bed, I had no home. Crawl out of bushes early morning. Use newspapers to keep me warm. Then I'd have to score a drink Start me up, help me to think Down city streets I would roll Use my fingers as it goes In those days when I was young Drinking and fighting was no fun It was daily living for me I had no choice, it was meant to be 
Down city streets I would roam I had no bed, I had no home There was nothing that I owned Used my fingers as it cold Now I'm a man I'm not alone I am married I have children of my own Now I have something I call my own These are my children And this is my home I look around And understand how street kids feel when they're put down. Down city streets, I would go. I had no bed, I had no home. And there was nothing that I You are back on 3CR 855 on your dial and you are listening to Green Left Radio and we are really happy to have special guests in the studio today. Uh, with us is Mercedes Zanka, who is the producer and host of Uprise Radio here on 3CR, and Sienna Highland, an artist and community organizer. And you're our first um, in-person guest since the breakout of coronavirus, so we are really happy to have um, both you and Mercedes, um, Sienna and Mercedes from they're from Black Spark, a um, community space bookshop and gallery in Northcote, Nam. And welcome to the show. Um, Thanks, Chloe. Thanks, Jacob. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having us on. We're very excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, just to tell our listeners a little bit about Black Spark, you know, its history, what goes on there, um, and maybe discuss some of the campaigns that Black Spark has, you know, been supporting and, um, you know, some of the, the work they do in the community. Absolutely, yeah. So Black Spark is really a community space that, um, that began through the COVID lockdowns um, realising that people needed a place to gather and to come together after the isolation and despair of being disconnected for so long. So we really wanted to create a space where people felt welcome to come together to, um, to create and to collaborate through, um, through the, the next stages. Yeah, and, you know, as you know, with the 
with coming out of lockdowns, we sort of came together. The social and political landscape was really shifting really rapidly. And um, so I suppose we were wanting to recognise the importance of spaces in which to gather once we emerged from that, which were welcoming and also safe to do so, um, mm-hmm. that allowed people to engage in whatever way that they were able to as well, um, given given the situation socially and, um, you know, health-wise as well. Yeah, that's a that's a um a pretty cool history. The the fact that you, it started um in this you know really kind of sad bleak time. Um, I guess um you know maybe tell listeners a bit about what is happening to Black Spark now. Um, you do have a campaign that's um happening to keep it keep the doors open. Um, so yeah, just um tell our listeners about about what's going on. Yeah, so we've been open for just over, well, coming up to 10 months now. And um, and through that time, there's been a really incredible kind of outpouring of support from the community as people have kind of come through the doors wondering what this space is about and wondering kind of how they can be involved. And effectively, that has, that has meant people coming in to do an in- incredible range of events, um, exhibitions. We've been supporting young artists to um, kind of bring their work into the community and really work together to, to work with people to, um, to determine what the community wants to see and what, what we all want to make happen. So we're currently um, coming up to our lease renewal and so we have decided to put a call out to the community um, to support us going into the next few years so we can keep this space entirely donation-based, free of charge for all the people who come through our door and for those who kind of, you know, are excited to work with us to to discover what Black Spark is still becoming. Yeah, Yeah. and we've sort of... Um, since we've been open that 10 months, you know, we have, it's been a space where we've had art auctions and fundraisers for different, um, community events and solidarity, um, uh, actions. And it's, uh, a space where people can have organizing meetings, workshops, skill shares. And I think, you know, we were just discussing on the way here. It is really exciting and kind of, um, pretty overwhelming in a really wonderful way, just how much support um, the community has given us already and how exciting it is to think about what the potential of the space could be by it being um, free and open and available for anyone to, to use to, you know, whether that be artists or musicians or organising groups mm-hmm. or action planning, um, you know, learning, book book launches or poetry, mm-hmm. um, poetry launches. It's... Uh, it is a space where we really want to foster the relationships that are built within our community to make those things happen mm-hmm. and also that we can work together with people to make the space what they want to... It is really dynamic, so what they want to make of it too and what they, the events that they want to see happen. That's really sort of what is behind... Um, why we really want to keep the doors open. Absolutely. So the, the space is entirely volunteer-led, so it really is organised by the by the community and for the community. And um, and so that, that space is really, really welcoming. When people do come in, it's, it's to work together, it's to collaborate, and it's to really foster um, and develop what that collaboration means in absurd and uncertain times. Sounds really inspiring. Jacob? Well, I guess I wanted to sort of go into, I guess, probably... You know, having a bit of a discussion about, I guess, why it's sort of important for people to kind of support this campaign, because I guess I sort of want to make a, a political comment that, I mean, you can respond to, because I think it is um, definitely relevant to your to your sort of um, what you're trying to do, because I think every any sort of grassroots group or any group of people who have tried to organise an v- event has always found that um, it's actually quite hard to find yeah. venues. Um, 
most of the council-provided venues are often quite expensive, even under the community rates, and then sometimes they have very sort of strict sort of definitions of what constitutes a community, like you have to do all this sort of paperwork, etc., um, have insurance and so on. Um, and I guess, and of course, there, there's probably another issue as well that, you know, space is actually increasingly privatised. Yeah. Like, you know, mm. a lot of what we what used to be, you know, very good sort of public spaces have been sort of eroded over time because of increased rents and, you know, grassroots groups like yourself have actually struggled to kind of maintain it. And I guess, yeah, in response to some of those sort of comments, you know, why is it so important for people to kind of support this sort of campaign? Exactly. Well, what you've just touched on there is what was one of our major reasons for, for wanting to bring the space together. Effectively, you know, through COVID, we saw everything, we saw, saw all our communal interactions go online and we saw the difficulties bringing those spaces back and really felt the lack um, of communal spaces to gather, um, to practice, to rest and to really have the discussions about where we're going from here. Um, and so that is why we feel it's so vital to keep a space where people can come together and to really determine what it is that they're going to be doing themselves and with each other. Um, yeah, and that's why it, it is. It, it does feel like a rarity these days to have a place where, where, where people can come um, without the expectation of having to pay enormous amounts of money. So, so that's why we're so excited to, to keep doing the work we're doing and have really been overjoyed by the, the response from, from people in local areas and, um, and from all the community groups um, and artist groups doing incredible work through the space so far. And I think also, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, getting into particular public or council spaces does... Mm. Um, require you to do a lot of work and paperwork and things like that. And I think that a, a really important part of Black Spark is that it allows people to interact autonomously. Um, or, you know, in not as individuals necessarily, like obviously as individuals but as part of a collective, but uh, to come in and use the spaces the way they see without any um, expectation. You know, we really tried to set it up without an expectation of how people need to interact with the space or what we require of them more than just a, on a logistical level, I suppose, mm -hmm. of just running an event, you know, so people can engage in the way that they, they want to. Yeah, it sounds like a, a pretty cool, like, inclusive... Um you know, free kind of space. And, yeah, like Jacob and you were saying, under capitalist society, these, you know, free public spaces, places like Black Spark are becoming less common. I mean, the right to even use our streets or parks, um, it's just, it's constantly under attack yeah. by um, capitalist cities. Um, it's just always being contested. So, I mean, it, it does seem like we're running out of spaces to meet and organise and, yeah. and think. Um, mm -hmm. We do have a mental health crisis here, and you know part of the reason is because you know we are becoming more, more and more isolated, you know, on our computers, um, online, and you know with the the coronavirus as well, it just that just became um, so much worse. And, and that was a big part of Black Spark. Yeah, you know, we did. Um, it was a deliberate intention not to try and make uh, the space really push it out to the communities through online channels and you know we do have social media accounts mm. and everything mm. like that but a big part of intentionally was to try and get people where where they could um to to come through and actually you know be in the space when when it suited them yeah. um and to to build it up that way rather than sort of trying to um formulate an online presence to get mm. people there it was um and as you said you know 
I will. I'm just going to throw in a little segue. Just, yeah, you know, yeah. Getting out of the streets, at, you know, <laughs> being out on the streets and using public parks mm. and the public spaces is increasingly becoming more difficult. So, um, I think alongside spaces like this, where we are in a building and organising, doing things like that, mm. it's really important that we do stay out on the streets and take up that public space mm. because, you know, let's not let them take it away. You know, it, it's a mm. it's it's space to use. So we've got to also keep getting out on the streets as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've just touched on something really important that that is actually, you know comes to one of our reasons for wanting to bring this space and have this space be accessible for people so that we can continue to to share the skills and learnings and the knowledge really necessary for engaging in public spaces, for engaging with what it means to be a part of a community and to really strengthen and develop the relationships that are at the heart of, you know, everything everything we want to do. Mm. Yeah, well said, um, Sienna. So, how much needs to be raised? I mean, is there like a target or a you know deadline that people can sort of work towards? Um, how can people donate and support this campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So, at the moment, we have a chuffed campaign up and mm. running with a pretty ambitious, let's say, target. Um, we've just we've just been let by our, let know by our real estate agents that we only have a month by which to renew the lease so we're setting that we want to raise this entire amount of money which is another 20 grand we have to raise by by mid october yeah so our, our total target is $30,000 um the chuff campaign we're pretty overwhelmed by the support already we've um raised just over 10,000 so far um we do have uh a few events in the works, you know, obviously we've kind of hustled to try and throw some, some gigs and things together, right. um, which we'll do, a, you know, we'll talk about perhaps shortly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, it's an ambitious target, but we are really, you know, also recognising that with people within our communities, you know, the difficulties and the financial constraints. So we are mm. also working out to try and reach beyond our um, communities as well mm. to, you know, to sort of reach out to the broader yeah. Um, mm. Broader networks to, to try and find support. So it's ambitious, um, but you know that's that's where we're at. Yeah. yeah. And it's also it, it is ambitious, but also you know by raising this money in in one lump sum, effectively, we can ensure that the space stays open and free of charge and accessible for the entire year, and that the volunteers working through the space and everyone who comes through the doors can be assured that that that, that they know how the space is operating and that they can. They, that they that they don't have to you know not be involved because they don't have the financial means to to put on or to, to run or to create whatever they want to see through the space. So this is yeah. That's it's, that's what it's for. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know it is exciting even though we you know we're still in a um, an undecided about whether our doors will stay open but it is already really exciting like, about the number of events that people have engaged us in. Um, mm. To, to try and run for next year. So, you know, we've sort of tentatively got things going, you know, without the decision being made yet. So, you know, there, there is still that um, need or, or desire to have it see, see it come through in the next couple of years as well. Great. I think you mentioned you wanted to – we are sort of um, – we probably have about three three minutes left or four minutes left, but, you know, um, I know that you have a digital campaigning and social skill share coming up. You can check that out on the Black Spark um, community Facebook page. Uh, but, you know, are there any sort of events that you want to promote? 
Yeah, so this Sunday afternoon we've got a um, acoustic delight gig. Um, so we do have a, a rehearsal, soundproof music room and rehearsal room as well um, with PAs. So it's a really good mu- you know live music venue. Um, and so there's a few great artists: Lasumo, Tom Riccioni, Emily McCarthy, Will Tremaine, and James Hoyle will be playing. So we've got a really cool lineup. Um, so that's happening this Sunday from four. Uh, we have a next uh, Friday, the 23rd, um, we're having a little community outreach and volunteer day. So if anyone wants to get involved, and so we've just got some letters for the people in the local area um, and just anyone that wants to come in, be involved in the campaign or even just chat about what Black Spark can be um, or any events. It's just an open gathering for people to come and, and check out the space and we're going to be doing a little bit of um, community outreach about the campaign. And we have... Currently in planning stages um, for the start of October, we're organising an art auction. So um, we've, you know, already been in contact with some incredible local artists who have um, been connected to Black Spark throughout the last year or a couple of years, and some new people will come on board. And so we're, you know, watch this space. Hopefully in the next week we'll have, you know, something a little bit more solidified. So keep keep your eye on our socials because that'll be that'll be happening, and that's pretty exciting. Sounds awesome. Um, definitely be getting involved in that. And that. And what's the address? Is it um, St. George? Yeah, so, so once again, everything can be found on the socials, mm-hmm. but we really are intent on creating in-person relationships, so please mm-hmm. come by. We're at 235A St. George's Road, Northcote, Nam. And, um, yeah, you can find a whole group of people there. There's always someone there to have a chat and... Yeah, yeah, get to know each other. The entrance is via on Gladstone Avenue, right. um, so you just have to go around the corner. The number 11 tram stop is right there, uh, and it's the Croxton station that is, you know, just a relatively short walk, and there's a bike path as well. So in terms of, you know, um, of getting there, that's how you can come and find us. Very accessible. Um, we definitely um, want to see Black Sparks um, continue. Um, you know, very like encourage listeners to dig deep. And keep supporting um, Black Sparks doors to, to remain open. They do a lot of great stuff. Um, and, yeah, we don't want to lose this independent, people-powered um, space. It's got a bookstore. It's got a um, gallery, music. Um, and, yeah, you can show your support just once again by making a donation to the Keep Black Spark Alight Chuffed fundraiser page, and we'll also make sure to add this to the Green Left Show's podcast um, description. And before we run out of time, is there anything else that you you know wanted to to, to tell our listeners? Come by and see us. Yeah, know, it's a really not a, you know it's not just events. It's also a really nice space to to chill and rest or you know have a cup of tea or coffee and just sit and read a book if you want to it's really um yeah and the conversations whether you want to have them or not are always there you know um, yeah. you know like for, it can be quiet it can be whatever you want to make of it so come and yeah absolutely and let's work together for creativity learning and liberation mm-hmm Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mercedes and Sienna from Black Spark. And, um, yeah, I'll hopefully yeah, come back soon and wish you the best of luck with your campaign. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and we'll just play a quick announcement. We've got a common enemy. 
The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Um, we're getting into kind of the end of our program, um, but one sort of plug I wanted to sort of give, um, and this is just drawing from uh, just a bit of a report from Green Left, but um, if you use TikTok, Green Left is actually now available, um, is now on TikTok, um, which is the kind of the recent sort of social media video sharing app that has exploded in popularity over the past few years, reaching more than 1 billion um, active users earlier this year. It is now the most downloaded app in Australia. So I just wanted to give a plug. Um, Green Left is actually producing quite a number of um, quite some good content on uh, TikTok. And you can go on to at Green Left. If you use TikTok, you can, you, you can access it by going to at Green Left online. So, yeah, it's definitely... Some of the both, it's definitely, you know, TikTok is a bit of a kind of craze, um, especially um, if you, you've probably come across a lot of TikTok app, um, um, TikTok sort of clips um, through Instagram and Facebook. So yeah, Green Left is now on TikTok and just give it a bit of a plug. All right. Well, we're getting to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, I'd like to thank all our guests um, for being on our program. And yeah, stay tuned for um, Earth Matters. And yeah, we'll see you. We'll um, listen to us next Friday from 7 a.m. Uh, 8.55 a.m. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap